We're continuing in Acts chapters 27 and 28. The last several weeks we've been covering large portions of Scripture because the end of Acts tend to be stories uh, that aren't easily broken up. And we're going to continue that trend this morning. We're going to cover all of 27 and then the beginning, the first 10 verses of 28. What's up? Okay. All right. All right. Before, uh, before we transition, let's just quiet our hearts individually. And I want each of us to please ask God, to, uh, to speak to us through his word this morning. So go ahead and invite the Lord to speak to you where you're at in your situation. This whole series has been about learning how to discern God's, God's will and voice in our lives. In 2019, in, in modern day, how do we hear his voice? So, so I, would, I would ask you as we approach the word this morning, as we end Acts, that you would ask him to speak both to you and then ask him to speak to us today. Father, we continue to invite you to move and speak in this place and to each of us. You are the living word, (laughs) alive, and your word is active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Speak, O Lord, for if you are silent, as the psalmist says, we might as well go down to the pit, be like those who are dead. Speak, God, because it's by your word that we have life. by your word that we gain wisdom. It's by your word that we learn about who you are, that we might worship you deeper with more spirit and more truth. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. All right, this week uh, we are going to be looking at the story of Paul. Uh, He's been in prison for two years in Caesarea under uh, Felix and then Festus, uh, the the Roman governors there, and that leads us up to where we're at, uh, where he, Paul, last week, he appealed to Caesar, and so he is going to be sailing to uh, Rome uh, to see Caesar. So this is a map of the journey that Paul took with his companions, and you can see he started Now, the Mediterranean, um, in ancient times, there were six months that you could sail on the Mediterranean, and there were six months that were off limits because of the storms, So, um, especially out in the middle of the Mediterranean. And the, t- the time of the year when it was dangerous to sail in the Mediterranean was basically between late September, so right around like a month from now, the beginning of October, through through the first months of spring, so right into like April-ish. That was typically when uh, sailing and shipping on the Mediterranean ceased. Now, that was a major problem for the city of Rome because the city of Rome, as the largest city uh, in in the ancient world, they needed a constant supply of food shipped from other places. And the main place that shipped food, uh, particularly grain, to Rome. Does anyone know? Any scholars in here know where that came from? So Rome relied heavily on grain that was shipped from Egypt. And if they went six months without grain being shipped from Egypt, there would have been uh, starvation um, and massive food shortages in this ancient huge city. So the time our story takes place 
is in, is in like late September, early October, and there's a clue in the text that, that we know that that's when it was. And so it's right on the edge, right on the edge of when it was safe uh, to sail the Mediterranean. Now, the emperor of the day, this is right before Nero became emperor. This is when Claudius was still the emperor. And what he had worked out was he was paying ships and captains of ships who were willing to sail during that six months of danger. He was paying them almost double what it was to sail during the other six months. So high risk, high reward. High risk, high reward. And that's going to play in to this as well, because the captain, and as we'll learn, the captain of the boat that they end up uh, crashing on, uh, he's got a boat full of what? What do you think? Grain. He's got a boat full of grain. And so Paul, in our story, is going to be really bossy, which is weird because he's a Jewish prisoner on this ship, and he's going to tell the captain what to do and how to sail his ship, which I don't think went over well and goes over well. Um, but Paul's saying we shouldn't go, but the captain, seeing that he can double his profits by making this journey, he's going to push forward. So that's just some interesting context that, that gives a little bit of the reasons why there's this back and forth uh, that takes place in this passage. So we're going to start in Acts chapter 27, verse 1. This is from the ESV. And Luke writes, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So there's a handful of prisoners that are put under the care of, of uh, this centurion. Verse 2, and embarking in a ship of Adramedium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. Everybody say Aristarchus. Aristarchus is really cool. We don't know much about him, but the Bible is filled with all of these wonderful men and women that we just get little hints at. Um, and then there's the characters where if I said, tell me about, tell me about David, probably everyone in this room could tell me, if, tell me several things about David's life. If I said, tell, tell me about Moses, if I, if I said, tell me about Aristarchus, who here would raise their hand and, and tell me a few things about Aristarchus? I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I, I'm in the same place where I, that wouldn't be one that comes to mind. And yet the kingdom of God, m much more than the Davids and the Moseses, in, in the day-to-day -day kingdom of God, it's built by men and women just like Aristarchus, who love the Lord faithfully to the call that they have. The kingdom of God is built by people just like you, just like me whose names may never be known. But that's not the point, amen? amen? Because walking in faithfulness to the call, to the place that God has for you and I. And I think Aristarchus is one of these people who just faithfully walked with God in his own way. He shows up a couple times in the New Testament. It's really cool. He shows up first in Acts 19. And if you remember from our journey through Acts 19, this is when Paul was serving in Ephesus. And there was the huge riot because all of these people weren't worshiping in the temple anymore. And so the silversmiths started to panic. And, and the tradesmen were worried that they were losing all this profit because people weren't buying idols anymore. And so they start this riot and they start dragging the Christians into the theater. 
So this is where we pick up in Acts 19. This is the first time we hear about this man, Aristarchus. It says, so the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So that's the first thing we learn about Aristarchus. He was from Macedonia, and then in the later passage, we learn that he was from Thessalonica, one of the churches that Paul planted as he was on his way down to Greece, going through Macedonia. So Aristarchus came to the Lord through Paul's ministry and began traveling with him. And he's with him in Ephesus during Paul's third missionary journey. They were Paul's companions. But when Paul wished to go in, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped over uh, an important part. Dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So the crowd in this theater, in this riot, they can't find Paul, so they grab the next best thing, those who are traveling with him. And so Aristarchus, who's a traveling companion of Paul, is dragged into the theater, and his life was probably within an inch of being over at that moment. This man has stared death in the face. And apparently he stands faithful because we continue to hear about him. So Paul wants to rush in to save his companions, but the others hold him back and don't let him. The next time we hear is about Aristarchus is a little bit later, but it's the next chapter. Some time has passed, though. It says in chapter 20, verse 4, Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. So this is the group that's traveling with Paul at the end of his third missionary journey back to Jerusalem to deliver the offering from all the different churches. So Aristarchus is also a man who's very trustworthy. He's been entrusted with a large sum of money from the Thessalonian church to, to accompany uh, Paul back to Jerusalem to represent the Thessalonians to uh, the church in Jerusalem. We read about him in Colossians. Uh, four, Paul mentions him. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So at some point, Aristarchus not only faced death in the riot, but he also was imprisoned uh, when Paul wrote this. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And then skipping down to Philemon, uh, writing to Philemon, Paul writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark. Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. And then we learn later in 2 Timothy that Demas has fallen away from the Lord because he loves the things of the world more than he loves God. But Aristarchus continues to serve faithfully with Paul. And here he is on the ship traveling from Caesarea to Rome for Paul's uh, audience before Caesar. And Aristarchus is part of the group. Isn't that cool? It's just really encouraging. So I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, whatever your story is, that the kingdom is built on men and women like, like this, who faithfully walk out their call in the way that God has. So I encourage you today to embrace that. Your call might be, your vocation might be staying home with your kids. Your vocation might be doing something in the technical world. It might be farming. It's a beautiful vocation in God. And you are every bit as much building the kingdom in that vocation as I am right here, and in some ways more profoundly than what I'm doing right now. So be encouraged and be strengthened and walk in the kingdom authority that God has for you. Amen? All right, continuing with our passage. Verse 3, chapter 27. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave 
to go to his friends and be cared for. Paul is so trustworthy that the, the soldier who's overseeing him literally lets him go free, knowing that Paul will come back. Verse 4, so sometime later, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria. Where's Alexandria? Egypt. This is the Egyptian ship filled with grain. So sailing, uh, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Canidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete and Salmon, coasting along it with difficulty. We came to a place called the Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Verse 9, since much time had passed, so it was very slow going as they're trying to work their way across. And the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Anybody know what the fast was that Luke mentions here? Is there a footnote in your Bibles? This is the Day of Atonement. So this would have been the, the Day of Atonement where the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and the goat and the lamb were slaughtered on behalf of the sins of the people of Israel. So Luke is saying the fast had passed. And uh, this would have taken place at the end of uh, September, the, this fast. This is how we know the time of year. The fast was already over. Paul advised them. So Paul the prisoner says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. To make this even more funny, more than just a prisoner, was the fact that Paul was Jewish. Now, in the, in, uh, the ancient world, uh, Jews were notorious. They had a reputation for being afraid of open water. So never in the history of uh, the kingdom of Israel in the biblical times were they a seafaring people. In fact, in the scriptures over and over again, particularly in the Old Testament, the sea is described as the place of chaos where only God can have dominion over it. Even Solomon, in all his glory, when he was doing his shipping stuff, he didn't have Jewish uh, Israelites do the shipping. He hired others from the local kingdoms to lead, to build, and to sail the ships. So here's a man who's not only a prisoner, but also comes from a people where there's this known stereotype where they're afraid and don't know anything about the, about the sea and sailing, and he's telling the captain how to sail the ship. I just think that's really funny. But he's right. So moving on, verse 11. But the centurion, so Julius, paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship, who, remember, really wanted to get to Rome to make double on their money, than to what Paul said. Verse 12. And because the harbor was not suitable for the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they would reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. So they're going to press on and try to find a place to harbor. Verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore, but soon a tempestuous, that's a fun word, everybody say tempestuous. I hope your children are not tempestuous. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land, 
And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, so they're trying to fight it, but the wind becomes too strong, so they turn and they give way to it and are driven by the wind wherever it's going to take them. Verse 16, running under the lee of a small island called Kauta, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. So this was the little rowboat on the side of their ship, and they managed to bring it back up so it wasn't lost. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So all the, all the extra cargo, they start throwing it off the ship in order to try to lift the boat higher in the waves so they won't hit the rocks beneath them as they're driven along. Verse 19, And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. So now they're getting desperate. Three days of this. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. All right, so we end up finding out in a little bit that it's 14 days and nights without sun or moon or stars. Can you imagine that with me? That's a storm. That's the storm. Being on a boat with no electricity, no refrigeration, uh, no modern commodities or comforts. Being on this first century shipping vessel and, and there's 280 people on this boat packed together what the smells and the screams and the sounds would have been after two weeks of not being able to see the sun or the moon. That's pretty bad. Look what Luke says. He says in verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, all hope of our being, what's the word there? Saved. Was at last abandoned. That's the Greek word, sozo. Everybody say sozo. That's a fun word. This is the word that's translated salvation in like the eternal, like our body, soul, mind, strength, saved in Jesus Christ for eternity, kingdom of God. This is that word. It's also used in the New Testament, in many other ways. This word that's translated as saved into English. In fact, more often in the New Testament, this word is used to describe a healing. Like, so Jesus healed the person and brought sozo. There was a saving that came through the healing. Like, and the actual healing is a saving from the disease. Or it's used in this circumstance, like Luke is using it, where he's saying, God saved, there's no hope of salvation. Is he talking about their souls or is he talking about their bodies there? He's talking about their bodies. He's talking about God saving them from the storm. Every breath that you take, every step we take, sounds like a good song. I should, I should turn that into a song. Every step you take, every breath you take is salvation from God. It's his sustaining, saving grace. If God would to remove his hand for us from, for one moment, what would happen? His sustaining hand and power. Not only would we be dead, we would cease to exist. If God would remove his sustaining salvation, there would be nothing. If God would remove his hand and the laws of physics... <laughs> 
no gravity. Everything would be gone without God's moment-by-moment salvation. And this is what Luke is talking about here. He's saying this storm beating on us, there was no hope of our being saved from this situation. And he's talking about believers and non-believers. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Do you think Paul abandoned hope here of being saved? I don't think so either. And this is like one of those moments where his strength and the calling and what God put in this man is, is just really shines in a special way. Verse 21, since they had been without food for a long time, so they're going on two weeks of no eating, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> he stands up and says, I told you so. Which is a great way to get people to want to listen to you more. Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Thanks, Paul. Verse 22, yet now I urge you to take heart. So be of courage is what that means. Be strengthened in your inner being. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you not only that, but he has granted to you all those who sail with you. So who do you think and what do you think Paul was praying for? Come on. What's that? He's praying for the people in the boat. He's praying for the soldier overseeing him. He's praying for the slaves. He's praying for the prisoners. He's praying for the soldiers. He's praying for them. And in the midst, while, while hope is being abandoned, there is no hope. We're all going to die. Paul is praying. And an angel comes and says, God has heard your prayers. And not only will, all of, not only will you be safe and go to Rome, I'm answering your prayer, and all the people, there will be no loss of life among anyone. Not a child will drown. Nothing. So take heart, men, Paul says, for I have faith in God. That's the word pistis, which I've talked about over and over again, which means not only believing up here, but it means steadfast loyalty. Because I have steadfast loyalty and commitment to God and have believed what he said, it will be exactly as I have been told. Verse 26, but we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. They just have that instinct from having spent their whole lives on the sea. They can tell. They can tell, even though it's dark in the storm, they can tell that they're getting closer to land. Verse 28, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. That's about 130 feet, 120 feet, something like that. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. That's like 90 feet, so that it's getting shallower. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. This is really cool. This is just a nerdy thing I'm going to share with you. Is that all right? This is the way that ancient boats would pump the brakes. So as the boat is being driven towards a coastline, and there's good archaeological evidence in this that you can see in the, in the various seas where ancient shipping took place. As the ship is being driven towards the coast, what they would do is they would drop one anchor until the line was about to snap. And so it would stop the boat. It would jerk them and stop. And as the rope is about to snap, they cut it. 
and they, they go about 50 to 100 yards, and then they drop another one. Same thing. And this was the way that they would stop themselves as they approached land so that it wasn't just an acceleration into the rocks, into the land. So this is what they're doing. Four times they drop these anchors. Four times they're driven forward. And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. This is verse 30. And they lowered the ship's boat into the sea, pretending that they're going to do more of that, that they're going to lay more anchors out. But Paul sees it, verse 31, and he says to the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Same word. You cannot be saved from this situation unless you stop them from doing this. 32, then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So they stopped the sailors from uh, slipping off safely. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food. All right, Parkford Church, this is the main thing that I think the Lord has for us. So pay attention to this. Look at your neighbor and say, pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. All right, seriously, this is, I think this is what God has for us this morning. Pay attention to this. The context, the storm, the darkness, the fear, the being driven, the not having eaten. And watch what Paul does. Watch what he does. As the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Verse 35, here it is. And when he had said these things, he took bread, he gave thanks to God, Eucharisto, the Eucharist, in the presence of all, he broke it, and he began to eat. What did Paul do? He serves communion. Paul serves communion to a boat full of soldiers and pagans and prisoners and slaves, only a handful of which have relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, in here on Sunday mornings when we serve communion, we ask that it be only those who have committed their lives to Christ who partake of the element in this, in this sacrament. And that's, a, that's appropriate, I think, for, for our Sunday morning gathering. But here Paul is, breaking the bread, the, taking the Eucharist, breaking it, giving thanks, and serving it. The word there, to give thanks, Eucharisto, the, the verb there, is the exact same word that's used when Jesus poured the wine and giving thanks, he passed it out to the disciples. It's the exact same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which was written before any of the Gospels. So it's the earliest account of the communion table. And in it, Paul says, I give to you what I received from the Lord, that on the night of his betrayal, Jesus took the bread and giving thanks for it, the exact same verb, he broke it and passes it out. What are the implications of this? What are the implications of this for you, for me, for us, where we find ourselves today? One of the things that is so precious about the communion table is that more than any other practice we have, it is the great leveler of all things. It meets us where we're at like no other practice in the Christian faith. Almost every sermon I give, someone will come up to me and say, that really met me where I'm at, thank you. And then I might, not always, but I might hear a word that, that is like, 
I, like that, that wasn't helpful, but you know, that kind of thing. And not in a mean way, I'm just saying it meets people in different places, because it might be a word about rejoicing, and maybe that's not where you're at. Or it might be a, a word about grieving, and maybe that's not where you're at. You cannot approach the communion table and not be met exactly where you're at. Because what does the communion table do when we approach it? If you are broken and you approach the bread and the cup, what does it do? It offers healing. If you're struggling with forgiveness, forgiving your brother or your sister, and you approach the communion table, what does it force you to do? Forgive and to receive forgiveness. You may not take this until you have forgiven and been forgiven. That, and this is the symbol of it. What does the communion table do for those of us who approach it when we're rejoicing? It's a celebratory feast with Jesus. When we're grieving, what does it do? It reminds us that we have hope in Christ. There's nothing else that can do that like the communion table, like remembering and giving thanks for the broken body and the poured blood. This is why, this is why I've introduced practicing communion here more than just twice a year. This is why, this is why we do this rhythmically. And I know not everyone is in the same place. We all come from different heritage, uh, heritages and practices. But part of me wishes we would take it every single week. Because I don't, want you, <laughs> I don't want you to see me. I don't want you to see who's leading worship. I want you to see Jesus. And when we come to the communion table, if we're coming to it, really coming to it, the only one we can see is Jesus. And it's not like, oh, good sermon or bad sermon, or I wish we would have picked better songs this week. I didn't really like how things went this week. You're at the communion table. You want to come to the table and say, I wish your bread would have been a little bit better today, Jesus. I wish your body would have been a little bit more broken for me today, Jesus. I wish your blood would have healed me a little bit more. No! It humbles the proud. And it lifts up the broken. And here is Paul on a ship that's going down and it's pitch black with people who don't know Jesus and he takes the bread and who do you think he would have blessed it and thanked it to? Jesus. And he would have said as he broke it, this is the God, this represents the risen Lord whom I serve, Jesus Christ, the one I've been telling you about this whole time that I won't shut up about. This is his body, broken for you. And then he passes it out, and they eat it together. It's appropriate for us on a Sunday morning in our congregation to say, if you haven't yet accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, please refrain until you're ready to do that. That's, that's fine. But here's my challenge for you. When you have people over to your house, when you go out to eat, when you're with non-believers in your place of work or at your school, you can serve communion. You can take the food and say, this represents the body of God broken for me, and I want to share that with you. What better way to share the love of Jesus Christ than to share with thanksgiving the broken body and blood poured out? Verse 36, they're all encouraged. <laughs> Not by the food. This is before they eat. 
And then they ate. So they're all encouraged by Paul's words. His words about Christ, his testimony. And then they ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat. So they finally give up the hope of making that big profit. They throw out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, and sometime at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The, the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, this is Julius, wishing to save Paul, the same word, wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plans. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all, every single person was brought safely to land just as the angel had promised. Chapter 28, verse 1, and I'm going to move quickly here. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us an unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, so he pitches in right away, he gathers a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastens to his hand. There's so much beautiful imagery here. And so I want you to think about stories of snakes in the Bible and import that into this story. Okay, I don't have time to do that for you. You can do it. Okay, that's your homework. I gave you homework last week. This is your homework this week. What other stories in the Bible represents a serpent striking someone who God loves? Right? There's all sorts of stuff here. So when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So he escaped from the sea and is bit by the snake. There's that proverb uh, that's told about the person who escapes from a lion only to be chased by a bear and running into a house. He puts his hand on the wall and is bit by a snake. You remember that from the Old Testament? Paul, this is Paul's story. <laughs> Escaping the prison only to be shipwrecked, only to be on the shore is bit by a snake. Though, though he has, uh, he, so he's not escaped justice. Verse 5, he, however, shook off the creature calmly <laughs> into the fire and suffered no harm. We can imagine Luke, the physician, who's there running up to him and examining his hand. And they're all waiting. Verse 6, they're waiting for him to swell up and drop dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their mind and said that he was a god. This is like reverse of when... Paul was planting or was preaching and they thought he was a god and then they get angry and they think he's a man and they try to kill him. Now it's reversed. They think he's a man and he should die and now they think he's a god. Obviously, he would have set their minds straight. Verse 7, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, laying his hands on him and healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. What should this remind you of? What story? This is my last piece of answer and response. Come on, this should remind you of a story in the Gospels. 
Peter's mother-in-law. Peter, uh, Peter invites Jesus over. Jesus goes in and finds Peter's mother-in-law laying sick with a fever. He prays over her, and then the whole town gathers around. What we are called to do is the same thing that Jesus has already done, following his example and following the example of those who follow his example. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put us on board whatever, they put on board for us whatever we needed. And we'll pick up from there next week. I want to end with this. This is where, where we were last week. These were the seven things I said that I think Paul was doing while he was waiting patiently for, set, for two years in the prison. He was praying without ceasing. He was singing psalms and hymns. He was meditating day and night on the word of God. He was remembering what God has done. He was savoring, tasting, and seeing the goodness of God with thankfulness and joy. He was patiently waiting on God, and he was actively waiting on God. And Paul made a great point at our group study this week that he would have been witnessing, too. Of course, he would have been witnessing uh, to God. And he's doing these same things on the ship, all of these things. And these things we, too, are called to do daily as we walk in the presence of God in times of plenty or in times of lack. Quiet your hearts. I want you to ask God as the worship team comes up to lead us in singing to close our time. I want you to, to pray and meditate on that picture of Paul serving communion on the ship as it's tossed to and fro. Go ahead and picture that for a minute. Let's receive, once again, the true form of salvation. That's not just sustaining us today, though that certainly is part of God's salvation. That's not just healing us from our physical ailments in this life, but the salvation of God that comes through the broken body and the poured out blood of Christ that saves not only for today, but saves for eternity. That we might always live with the King of kings and Lord of lords. That we might live with him eternally. This is possible because of the broken body and poured out blood of Christ. We worship you, Jesus, and we receive from you again with thanksgiving, giving you thanks, your sacrifice to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. This is exactly the prayer that we bring to the Lord's table when we approach the elements, the broken body, the blood poured out. Here's my heart. Speak what is true. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we proclaim the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of your Son. And we proclaim in unity and unison together and in agreement with the Word of God That salvation is found in you and you alone. And whosoever should call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so as we come from this place, knowing that we ourselves are in Christ, having been crucified with Christ, having shared in that, and having shared in his resurrection, as we celebrate that, 
we also go forward from this place knowing that every moment, every relationship is an opportunity to walk out our faith in such a way that it opens up pathways of salvation to those around us, just like Tim prayed and encouraged us. So Lord, here's our heart collectively. We invite you to speak what is true in each situation, each relationship, and in our lives with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go with God. Have a great week. Be blessed.